Blog Talk Radio. the Gluten-Free Voice. I am Jules Shepard, Jules Gluten-Free, and also from the organization 1in133.org. I know some of you who are listening are familiar with that because we are on here tonight to talk about the FDA's recent um, issuing of the final regulations pertaining to gluten-free food labeling laws. And 1133 was a big part in that. And so I know there's a lot of folks who are listening who are familiar with 1-133. I am very excited, though, tonight to be welcoming onto the show my dear friend, Andrea Lavario, from the American Celiac Disease Alliance. And aside from being my friend and um, co-conspirator, so to speak, in 1-133, she is the executive director of the American Celiac Disease Alliance, which is basically the advocacy voice of the celiac community in Washington, D.C. Welcome, Andrea, to the show. Thank you for joining us, taking time out of your crazy schedule in the midst of all of this to come on and help explain these regulations. Oh, thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Well, and Andrea has been around um, with these regulations for quite a while because the history here is far goes farther back than I think a lot of people even realize. Andrea was involved with this Celiac Disease Alliance for has been involved for a number of years when the Food Allergen Consumer Protection Labeling Act of 2004 was really coming into being. That's when our community kind of galvanized to form this organization that Andrea is now the executive director for. So I wonder, Andrea, if you could give us a little bit of background for those who aren't familiar with FALCBA, the Food Allergen Consumer Protection Labeling Act of 2004. You know, how did gluten-free fit into that? And maybe that will give some folks some perspective on why we're just now getting to the gluten-free portion of the regulations that Congress had asked the FDA to put forward. Sure. So in um, 2003, a group of the leaders from the celiac community, from the centers, some of the food manufacturers and the support organizations, um, uh, came together, and it was shortly after the the landmark prevalence study had been published um, and announcing, uh, revealing that one in 133 Americans um, had celiac disease, or roughly 3 million people, and they knew and expected that people would now be um, diagnosed at a greater rate, and once diagnosed, of course, without a, a, a medical treatment, no pill or anything like that, they had to be able to eat, and unlike other uh, parts of the world, uh, gluten was not, uh, gluten or the grains, uh, gluten-containing grains were not required to be disclosed on product labels. So um, by sheer fortune, I guess, um, Dr. Fasano happened to be the the um, physician for my son, and he knew I worked with Congress, and he asked if I would help them work on this allergen on, you know, a labeling bill. And about the same time, there was already legislation sort of working its way through or starting to work its way through Congress to require the top eight allergens to be labeled. And um, we had a number of conversations with 
congressional staff and members of the House and the Senate and explain to them the importance of having the grains that were of concern and problematic for people with celiac disease listed on the labels. A number of folks wanted the label to include the term gluten. Unfortunately, there is no universal definition for that word, and um, the food industry balked at that very um, strongly and said if gluten was on the label, they would basically shut the bill down. And um, so that was... Meaning you know, that the top eight food allergens wouldn't even be labeled. Right, exactly. And so that was the first round. The second round came around, the uh, second time the bill came back up. So that was 2002. 2003, we were back at it again. And the starting point was just the top eight allergens. Gluten was not even on the table and was not even open for discussion. So um, at that point, we realized about 90%, maybe a little bit more percent of the issues for people with celiac disease really related to wheat and um, wheat derivatives being disclosed. So we knew that that would take us very far, but we also wanted very much to have something else um, available um, beyond that to that would address both barley and rye. And so we insisted that the um, gluten-free regulation language be included in the bill, and we were fortunate that it was in the final bill um, that was ultimately signed into law. So once the bill was finished on August 2nd, 2004, it was signed into law. We're getting very much, very well at August 2nd. Um, yeah, I'm seeing a pattern mark there. Um, uh, right after it was signed into law, we immediately started having discussions with FDA about, okay, so now how do we move forward on the next steps? And um, worked with them throughout the process and I'll call and through what many people have called the dark days where. You know, it seemed like nothing was really happening, but, you know, for those... Well, and just to clarify, with that regulation, the Food Allergen Consumer Protection Labeling Act of 2004, while it did require manufacturers to label items that contained the top eight food allergens, including wheat, it did not require a labeling of barley or rye, the other two gluten-containing grains, but it did say in a different section of the provision, which is what you all worked so hard for, that the FDA was tasked with defining gluten and defining gluten to. for labeling. Right. right. For and that was, that. they were right. supposed to have done that by 2006? August of 2006, they were supposed to have the proposed rule out um, mm -hmm. available for us to review. Um, they missed that deadline by about five months. It came out in January. And mm -hmm. then it was supposed to be final in August of 2008. So from 8 to 13 um, was the five years that we um, waited for it to be completed. Right, and then and in so the interim, we, had, we went through another iteration that came out in 2011. Right. So yeah, and and that's what I think a lot of folks who are listening will have have some familiarity with is that you know the community started to go, okay, now wait a minute, this was supposed to have been done, and we don't have anything yet. So in 2011, that's when one and one three three dot org was formed, and we built the world's tallest gluten free cake, and we had the gluten free labeling summit where Congresswoman um, Lowy and McCollum came, and Deputy Director of the FDA Michael Taylor came. And the community was really galvanized around the petition drive and also just getting in the same room with the FDA and saying, this is really important to us. And there were, 
I think we were all pretty shocked to hear that the FDA really didn't even have it on their to-do list. <laughs> it was like it was out there, but they didn't think that because it was voluntary that there was really much that they needed to be doing. And once they saw the community was um, very eager to have these regulations um, you know, out there, he was true to his word, Deputy Director um, Michael Taylor was, and in August of 2011, they sort of, started the ball rolling again and issued the draft regulations, essentially the same ones that they had issued in 2007 and never finalized, had the comment period and all of that. And then we've been in a waiting game since then to find out when these were going to be finalized. And in August 2nd of this year, again, that wonderful date, and that was last Friday, that's when we got word that they had been finally finalized. So that's a a short history of a long process, but I think it's important for people to know how long the American Celiac Disease Alliance and all of those folks who have been passionately working for gluten-free food labeling regulations, how long we all have been working for that. Because, you know, when people look at what we have now as the food regulations, which we're going to start talking about, Right now, some people aren't totally happy with what they are, but they were a long time in coming, and and they were, um, I think they're a, a great first step for us to look forward to um, them being implemented and, and being a really great step in the right direction towards safety for gluten-free consumers. So thank right. you for the background. <laughs> well, and I think one thing that, that people um, aren't, aren't may not be aware of as well is, in between the time of the first um, uh, regu- the first proposed rule um, closed, which was in April of 2007, um, the um, the study that was conducted by Dr. Fasano and Dr. Katasi that um, demonstrated that 20 ppm was safe had not been published. So FDA did not even have that research to rely on as they went forward. It was published right after that. So when mm-hmm. they, between the time of the first proposed and the second proposed, we can say safely, the science changed. And right. FDA now had the science from that study, which is really the best hard study out there today. And in the interim years, we also saw that the Codex Alimentarius change and have a 20 ppm standard. So it w- those intervening years really were critical to shifting the, what was happening in terms of moving this ball forward, as well as a 10-foot cake. But um, there were things that were happening around us and in the world that were, that were key, or we may not even be where we are today. Right. Well, and uh, just to back up, the Codex Elementarius is – sort of uh, equivalent to what the FDA kind of put out with regard to gluten for the U.S. It is the European version of that, and it was, it's been done for much longer and has established that less than 20 parts per million is a safe um, amount of gluten for people who are on a gluten-free diet for medical reasons. So that's, that's what Codex means. But, the, um, yeah, I think that's a really interesting point that you make about the science, and I think a lot of people are, you know, questioning that 20 parts per million standard. So maybe you could just flesh that out just for a moment because you did mention that it's really the only hard science out there. That's what the FDA was basing their rule on, right? It was really looking at what the science is, what they could actually say was proven 
at this point in today's medical world as being a safe level for celiacs? Well, I mean, they looked at that research that was out there um, and, you know, what is being done in, in other countries and how did they, you know, come to the to um, set their standards. They also conducted what's called a safety assessment, and there were two different methods that FDA was could use to determine, you know, what would be the safety factor for the regulation. And uh, this is a, 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 a situation where, the lack of science was a problem because while there is a great deal of science about determining what is safe thresholds or what is safe and um, or analyzing what could be safe with regard to people with food allergies, there is almost no no research on that topic for people with celiac disease and the the impact of someone um, accidentally eating gluten is very different than for some food allergies in which you could die. And so how you balance those two um, was an issue for FDA to come, how do you, you know, how do you reconcile that? Because they are two very, very different things. Although, you know, what we often say is, well, we may not die today over the long term if we are, you know, inadvertently getting gluten, um, you you know, it, it could um, have long-term health consequences. So, it took time for FDA to really work through that, and they are very, they are very uh, conservative, um, and um, they want to make sure that the science is right to be protective. And at the same time, they had to look at what will it do to the marketplace. You always have to balance what's happening with industry at the same time, and particularly in this case, because food is what we're relying on. So if the standard were set too low, um, you would have a t- potential for uh, industry to say, we're going to leave the marketplace or um, product and products wouldn't be made any longer or people, they wouldn't be labeling them anymore and that would make it more difficult for individuals to comply with a diet. So that would pose, you know, another set of issues. Then the other issue too is when you look at the testing methods, um, the tighter the standard the variability goes up. And so at 5 ppm, the variability in the test is higher than it is if the standard is at 20 ppm. There's less variability. So you have to, they have to look at those factors as well in terms of how are we going to enforce this. So, you know, there's, there's a, a number of factors that, that had to be considered before they could arrive at what we think is the best place Today, you know, we would all like to see it lower if the science takes us there. But for today, I think that FDA made the right decision. Well, and I think that's that's a, a really good point that we should um, talk a little bit more about. I'm, I solicited questions through um, my blog post on blog.julesglutenfree.com as well as Facebook and Twitter for people to chime in with their questions about, you know, their concerns about the legislation or rather the regulations um, and also just, you know, understanding how they would be implemented. And one question that came in from Sandra was, you know, what about this testing? Because you just were talking about there are tests that can test a little bit more, um, you know, to a lower level than what the 20 parts per million is that the FDA has set. And she says, I have a home test kit certified accurate that tests down to 10 parts per million, and I understand that there are more sophisticated tests that can test down to three parts per million. 
If under 20 parts per million is allowable, then the food can contain anywhere from 0 to 19 parts per million. And she's concerned, why can't we use a test that tests to lower than that and therefore lower the standards? So that's sort of what you were talking about a second ago with the variability, but could you just address that question a little more specifically? Sure. Um, Yes, there are tests that test to a lower standard, but the question is, is a lower standard necessarily safe? There isn't, the research doesn't, we don't have a research, there is not research out there that says that a patient is safer at 3 ppm than they are at 20 ppm. There, it just, it doesn't exist yet, and hopefully it will at some point. You would think by the fact that it is lower that it would be safer, but there's no way of knowing that because you don't actually know when you look then at what the variability is in the test were you really getting three or were you getting seven or were you getting ten? And the same at ten, were you really getting, were you getting five or were you getting fifteen or twenty? There's, you know, those are, those are questions that we really can't answer. And I think the, the concern was industry has said, yes, they can do twenty. Um, a number of folks said that yes, they can they can do it lower, they can test lower, and the certification programs are testing at a lower threshold. There was concern about what would this mean for the marketplace, and since this is the only course of treatment for people with celiac disease, that you run the risk of product leaving the market and making it more difficult for people to comply with the diet, and that is a that is a, a concern that you know we have to. We have to consider, um, you know, in in terms of how the standard was set. I don't. I if the standard was not safe, I can feel confident saying that FDA would not have set the standard at 20 ppm. And likewise, we wouldn't have an international standard at 20 ppm. Right. Well, and maybe it would also help to um, answer the question of, let's say, you know, in 2014, a new study comes out showing that, you know, in fact, celiacs are harmed at 20 parts per million, but they're not harmed at 15 parts per million. I'm totally throwing these numbers out. This is not scientific in any way. I'm just, you know, throwing out a, a, a scenario. Under these regulations, how or would the FDA then reconsider their standard? Um, I, the numbers you gave, I think, are a little too close together for it to be. Yeah. Well, okay. Then say realistic, 10. I mean, but, it doesn't matter. But, in terms but of, yeah, if it was different. Right. I mean, we said in our comments to the FDA that if the science shows that it is safer to go lower, that it is more protective of the patient, then yes, FDA must consider that science, and we would recommend that they go lower. And FDA has said the exact same thing in their in the summary of the proposed or of the final rule that they will monitor the science to see um, if it needs to be adjusted and um, and we will hold them to that absolutely okay great well and that's the the answer that I was looking for because I think you know a lot of people are concerned they're not happy with the 20 parts per million and they think that we're stuck with that and we're not necessarily stuck with that because the science is at 20 parts per million now, but it may be that it changes at some point in the future, and we'll know that. But I think, you know, what I always say to people, and this doesn't have anything to do really with the FDA's new regulations, you mentioned earlier the independent certification agencies. If you're someone who believes that you're sensitive to a um, to a, a degree below 20 parts per million, you always have the option of purchasing certified gluten-free products from either the GFCO certification 
the CSA certification, even the QAI now has a, has a certification with the NFCA, those are certified to 10 parts per million or less. And so you can seek out those products that are certified and know that you're actually getting something that is 10 parts per million or less. Um, but in order to you know meet the needs of international trade and to juggle and um, balance really all of the different considerations that you mentioned earlier about, you know, the marketplace and compliance and having options and affordability and all of that. Um, I believe that's, you know, why the FDA had netted out where it did with the science, which shows to date that, you know, less than 20 parts per million is not harmful to someone who has celiac disease. Right. Um, and I should say that the Oh, if I could just go back one second. The study yeah, go ahead. that was actually done by Dr. Fasano found that that this is a safe the, that at 50 pp they found that I believe it is 50 ppm was safe. So they built in a safety factor themselves and said, based on that, we're going to go down two levels and say that 20 ppm is where the standard should be set. So a safety and factor that was, was taken built to in. Right, and that's taking right. into consideration that the manufacturers could still meet the 20 parts per million, and it's right. even more stringent than what they needed to have according to the science. Right. Okay. Well, let's talk about the regulations now, because um, I think a lot of people are curious, you know, what they actually do say and what they do mean. First of all, just because they came out on August 2nd, that does not mean that they are, quote, in effect yet. They will actually go into effect in one year, I believe it's August 5th. Is that the date of um, when all of the manufacturers have to be complying? <laughs> yeah, D-Day, August 5th um, of 2014. D-Day, we'll call it G-Day. Um, yes, the date <laughs> of Day. publication one year later, so the rule was actually effectively published on August 5th, so one year from Monday, um, so that would be August 5th, 2014. Uh, companies will have to be in compliance with um, the regulation by that date. However, and FDA, the is regulations. FDA is encouraging companies to come into compliance sooner. Well, and I think any manufacturer who's been paying attention at all to this marketplace and to what's going on had an idea that this was coming, so they should mm -hmm. be already moving in that direction. Right. There, this, um, in terms of the standard, this was no surprise. Right, right. Okay, well, let's talk about then, in addition to, you know, that a manufacturer – has to comply with a less than 20 parts per million um, standard if they want to label their products gluten-free. What else do these regulations say? Well, first, it is voluntary. The companies are not required to label their products gluten-free if they choose not to do so. Um, the one issue that people are uh, have concerns about, and you know, we're um, somewhat surprised, is that companies are not required to test their product. They have, yeah. uh, there are various ways that they can, you know, determine whether or not their product is safe, and it will depend, of course, on what the product is that they're, that they're making. For example, if all of the ingredients for your product um, are completely gluten-free, they don't come anywhere near gluten, and you're making your product in a, in a um, gluten-free facility, the chances are that you do, and you're, you've checked with the suppliers that the ingredients are clean, the chances are you may not need to, but the same would not be the case of, you know, somebody who is making cookies 
where we know that grains have a tendency to have cross-contamination. So it, it is going to depend on what the product is and what the company feels is appropriate for what they're making. That said, from our perspective, good manufacturing practices, knowing who the product is going to, who you're making the product for, and that this is for a medically prescribed diet, we would hope that they are testing their products. Well, and I also got another question about that, and it was that, you know, if the FDA is saying that they that the manufacturers don't have to test, then manufacturers may not be motivated to go through the time and expense of testing or of getting certified. And and I've heard this from a number of people who feel like that even the independent certifications are going to go by the wayside now because of this new FDA standard. And I happen to disagree, and, and I'll let you comment as well. I think, you know, as a food manufacturer myself, and, I, and my products are already certified by an independent um, certification agency, but I counsel other food manufacturers to all get certified. And this, to me, this FDA regulation doesn't change that at all because what is the best way to assure the FDA and any consumer that you are following manufacturing best practices, that you are actually um, providing a safe product and that you are complying with the FDA rules, get certified from an independent certification agency who even holds you to a higher standard. So to me, I, I don't see these agencies going by the wayside. I see them as having a new role, which is, you know, providing backup for all of these manufacturers who, you know, want to have a CYA, so to speak, for any claims that people might make that, that the, the foods that they're producing are um, out of compliance with the FDA rules. How do you feel about that? Well, I think um, I agree with you. I tend to agree with you. I don't see that the cert- – I think the certification companies are going to be overwhelmed with business. <laughs> um, yeah. In part because, you know, we have seen so many companies come into the marketplace to try and get um, part of this mar- – try to get market share. And I think we will continue to see more companies coming in. And I think that um, – those companies who are new to this and want to make sure they're doing it right, and I think that you know I will give them the benefit of the doubt that that is what they intend to do. They want to produce a you know a, a, a good product um, so that it'll be purchased. That they're going to seek out the certification companies so that they can understand what is it that I should be doing, what is it that I shouldn't be doing, and um, have someone guide them through the process um, so they can get moving and getting get their product on the market. So I think um I think that um they are not going to go by the wayside at all. Yeah. That um that's certainly you know the answer that I've been giving is I think that it's there's going to be a clear need for them to have a continued presence in the marketplace. Um moving on to a couple other points um on this regulation you said that we were kind of surprised which we were that there was not going to be a requirement for testing um one thing that i was surprised by as well and i think i think you may have been um is that products that are naturally gluten-free are going to be allowed to be labeled as gluten-free so even spring water and fruits and vegetables and eggs and things like that can now bear a gluten-free label without having the caveat of, you know, as are all eggs. Um, that is a little bit unusual. We we had not, I don't think, seen that one coming. We, the, in reviewing the, the summary of the comments from FDA, 
there they received numerous comments that the additional language that appeared that they had proposed as clarifying language um, was too confusing and um, so rather than just not rather than saying okay bottled water really it doesn't make sense for you to carry that label um, at all and we won't have clarifying language they decided instead to allow water to be labeled gluten-free which I think will create um, uh, a fair amount of confusion um, not just on water but on other products that yeah. you would never expect to see labeled gluten-free and it was clear that the reason it was done was so that um, companies could, um, you know, companies knew that a number of people with celiac disease buy products strictly um, if they're labeled gluten-free and, um, you know, this will, you know, help them going forward uh, with uh, additional sales. Um, I think it, it's going to pose an issue for the community in terms of should I even pay attention to that label on products yeah. like this? Is it necessary? And that's a level of education that one isn't, you know, we, we would prefer not to have to deal with, um, but we're going to have to deal with it as we as we go forward, and um, it's unfortunate. And uh, it's inconsistent with other um, approaches on food labeling, and, um, you know, maybe that one will be re revisited down the line. Yeah. Uh, we'll see, because <laughs> I, I can tell you, it's. Um, I agree completely that I uh, that I was surprised and, and disappointed that that was in there as as it is. Um, there is a, a a large national grocery store chain that touts the fact that it has you know pages and pages of gluten free products that they sell, and you walk in the store and they have a you know a, a list that you can pick up and, and navigate through the store of all the gluten free products, and I was so frustrated when I went in there um, even years ago and picked up the list, and the first three pages were all different flavors and types of bottled water. Right. And, you know, so it made it look like they had a robust gluten-free offering, and they didn't. They had water, and, and then there were a couple of cereals. <laughs> you know, it was like this is very frustrating for a gluten-free consumer. They're on for so many different reasons, especially people who are new to the marketplace, the confusion that that type of labeling will cause. Um, mm -hmm. Well, if this bottle of water is labeled gluten-free and this one is does that mean that water is not gluten-free? <laughs> it's going to pose a lot of problems, but we'll have to um, address that as it comes. Another um, another question that I've gotten about the new regulations that perhaps you could um, expound upon a bit is that products that contain grains, gluten, barley, I mean barley, rye, or wheat that contain gluten, they can still be labeled gluten-free if they have been processed to remove the gluten to less than 20 parts per million. Can you explain that a little bit? Um, that is correct. There are processes by which that um, these grains can um, basically have the, the proteins removed, and um, FDA has been aware of that, and what they're saying is if you can demonstrate that the proteins have been removed through a process that we agree that has been scientifically proven to do that, then those products um, may be labeled gluten-free. And one example of that is something called Codex 
wheat starch, which was the Codex Alimentarius we were talking about earlier, there's a, a wheat starch product which actually is used quite a bit in Europe and has so far been rejected in this country by the consumers, not by the government, um, because it's wheat starch. And people right. are shocked to see wheat starch listed as an ingredient on a gluten-free product. And I think there's going to be a learning curve there as well. We'll see if it works in the United States. It did not when it was tri- they tried to introduce it a number of years ago. It didn't really um, sit so well with the gluten-free population here. So it'll be interesting to see if anything changes with that now in the future. Um, with new products coming in the market every day and international products coming in to the play as well. Now that we have the same standard as the majority of other countries who have addressed this issue, um, there will be an expectation that there will be some more um, trade than we've had even in the past of gluten-free products. So we'll be, um, I'll be interested to see if that, if that flies here in the United States. People usually um, don't like to hear the word wheat if they're gluten-free. <laughs> I don't think they want to see that on their labels. But to know if it's been processed, then that's, that's going to be interesting. Um, a couple other things that, the, that this regulation didn't address, and one of them is you know, sort of tangentially related to this discussion we were just having, is hydrolyzed and fermented foods, things um, like gluten-free, um, so-called gluten-free beers that are deglutenized because they right. are made from barley, but mm-hmm. um, they have been processed to supposedly remove the gluten proteins. The, were those covered by this FDA regulation? Um, the regulation does cover gluten-free beer, beers that are made from a gluten, uh, non-gluten grain, so sorghum, gluten-free sorghum beers are covered by the regulation. The FDA acknowledged that there are these other beers made from gluten-containing grains that reportedly um, uh, are testing um, under 20 ppm. However, that the test used by the company has not, while it has been validated for other purposes for um, the use in other foods, it has not been um, proven to be, uh, has not been validated for the purposes of these types of of alcoholic beverages for the beers. And um, FDA has said that they will go back to this issue and they will be issuing a proposed rule sometime in the future. They did not give a, a specific date to revisit this issue and to take comments on the testing methods and um, additional science to see how they should proceed with regard to um, the testing of these products and whether they should come under the rule. So what happened is uh, a year ago in um, May of 2012, the um, uh, TTB, which regulates um, alcoholic beverages and beer, issued an interim guidance saying that their specific rule, their, for their purposes, um, products um, with, um, made with gluten-containing grains could not be labeled gluten-free. They had to have a caveat on it, um, even if they were testing below um, 20 ppm. And so they said once FDA comes out with its final ruling, then we will go back ourselves, TTB, and revisit the issue and decide how we want to proceed with regard to these products um, once we know what FDA is going to do. So both FDA and TTB will need to be working together now on this proposed rule that will come out um, sometime in the the future. And so just to be clear, um, beers that are 
quote-unquote deglutinized because they're made with barley, but they have um, gone through processing with certain enzymes that is um, supposed to take care of the the hordings, the um, glutens in the barley beers to make them gluten-free. They are not under this rule going to be allowed to be labeled gluten-free at this time. We're waiting That's to hear correct. from the FDA until That's that. Correct. So, and- um, and the rulemaking process will be very similar to what we went through for the gluten-free rule. FDA will put out a proposed rule. Public comment will be taken. They will take all those comments back in. They will evaluate them, and then they will you know, make a decision on how they want to proceed um, and issue a final rule. So I think that okay. process is probably at least a couple years away. They're probably done with us for a little while, <laughs> the FDA. Um, okay, well, let, just, I want to just plow on because we've only got a few minutes left. Um, pharmaceuticals, are they covered by this rule? No. Um, prescription medications are not covered by the regulation. Um, however, FDA does acknowledge at the end of the summary um, on the final rule that they have already begun looking at the issue of prescription medications and what labeling may be needed and um, are looking into that. They did not give any um, time frame in which they would issue um, any final decision on what they were going to do there. We do know that they do not need any regulatory authority to do it. They can do it today if they make the decision that it should be done. That said, we have already um, taken steps and working with others in in the community working with members of Congress on um, legislation that would require labeling of prescription drugs if um, there are any gluten-containing ingredients. And that legislation was introduced by Congressman Tim Ryan out of Ohio, and um, it has not been introduced in the Senate, but there is um, some very significant interest in the Senate as well. Okay, what about vitamins and other supplements like that? Dietary supplements and vitamins are covered um, under the rule, yes. Okay. And what about non-food products? For example? Well, I've gotten several questions where people want to know about lotions and, um, you know, cosmetics and things like that. No, actually, those are covered by a separate law completely that is that would be under FDA's jurisdiction, but the uh, FALCPA only addressed food that is ingested. It did not address anything um, otherwise. So, no, it does not cover cosmetics. Okay. And uh, this is a big one. Everyone wants to know the answer to this one, and I'm not sure you even know it yet. What about restaurants? The, um, the rule appears to indicate that, yes, it covers restaurants. Um, We have asked for clarification from FDA on this point um, in uh, plain English that we can explain for sure how restaurants, if they are covered, which I believe they are, um, how they would comply with with the regulations. Um, I haven't heard back from them. I'm hoping that we will have an answer soon. Um, Now, that said... I do know that there are folks who have been in touch with um, restaurant industry officials, um, folks from within the, the celiac community, and they, you know, their response seems to be, if you are making claims on your menus um, that you're serving something gluten-free, they would hope that you are following the regulation, that in terms of protecting you know, the restaurant itself, if you're going to be making claims, then you need to be able to be doing the right things 
to ensure that the what you're serving is safe. So, but um, I think it's going to be that is going to be a whole um, educational process as well in terms of how that will be done, you know, training for staff, all of that um, is going to need a lot of attention going forward. Okay. Um, so, like, uh, we've discussed that this is not going to be in effect until next August, August of 2014. What happens at that point if a consumer purchases a product that is labeled gluten-free and they feel like they've been made sick by eating it because they feel like there was gluten in the product? What will be the consumer's avenue of recourse at that point under these regulations? Well, this even before 2014, um, if a consumer um, has a gluten-free product um, that they believe has made them ill and they believe that the reaction is because there was gluten in the product, they should report that to an FDA uh, complaint coordinator. And we do have link. Both FDA has a uh, link on their website, actually, I think, on the, the, the Q&A page for the gluten-free rule. Um, to those coordinators. We have them on our website. I believe the other um, national celiac organizations also have it listed on their website. There's one in almost every state. And you would contact them and tell them, you know, what it is you ate. You please retain the original packaging. They're going to want to know UPC code on it, um, where you purchased it, all sorts of you know, information like that so they can track the product and see if, in fact, there, there may have been an issue within um, the production of the product. And then what will the FDA's enforcement abilities, what will they have as options before them if they do find that a manufacturer has not complied with the labeling regulations and the standard set? If FDA finds that the, it will vary depending on what the infraction is, how um, uh, severe how severe the um, the issue is. So if a product tests instead of 20 parts per million, it tested at 25. I'm sure they would, you know, they may say we think you need to test a little. Maybe you should be testing your product if the the company wasn't testing before. If they find something egregious like the, a product is testing at 200 parts per million, they may have, um, they may send them an action letter telling them that they need to be pulling product off the shelves and um, they need to be testing their product on a regular basis and FDA may then go in and actually inspect the plant to see what's going on there. And um, I mean, they can force recalls if necessary, if something is very, you know, extremely egregious. Um, we haven't, I'm only aware that that has happened one time with a gluten-free product, um, that it was so grossly um, mislabeled, or it wasn't, it wasn't the label that was wrong, it was the fact that it was had, you know, I think it was actually made with wheat products and... Right, and, it was uh, put in the wrong packages. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, that's good to know. And, that, and um, can you also just provide the website for the American Celiac Disease Alliance for folks who want to learn more to get updates when you learn more about the restaurants and to get the links for what you were referring to if they did have a consumer complaint to the FDA? Sure. sure. Our um, website is www.americanceliac.org. You can also sign up for our um, newsletter on the site, and uh, we actually put out a very nice little four C's uh, earlier this week that um, for 
that we're calling um, to help people learn and understand what the what the rule means and the four C's are consistency, clarity, that it's consumer friendly and it will give uh, consumers confidence that we now actually have a standard that um, all manufacturers will need to comply with. Great. And if you want to learn more about the um, world's tallest gluten-free cake, which is actually over 11 feet tall, Andrea, not 10. Oh, how can I do that? Yeah, you can go to 1in133.org and see all of the supporters of our movement and learn more about how that happened, see some pictures and some fun stuff um, for history besides this. You can also go to blog.jewelsglutenfree.com to read the article that was posted there on Friday about um, how far we've come and, and what this means to us as consumers. Thank you so much, Andrea, for all of your hard work um, on this and for taking the time to talk to us tonight. I really appreciate it, and um, we have a lot to look forward to. Sure, and if folks have other questions and would like to uh, send them our way, we're happy to try to answer questions. I know Jules is doing a magnificent job on that as well. Um, you can just shoot them to info, info at americanceliac.org. Great. Thanks so much, Andrea. Thanks for listening, and um, looking forward to seeing lots of gluten-free labels. Yep. Have a good night, everybody.